0: Greetings, Redeemer, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a pleasure to be back here with you. The pastor has tried repeatedly to get me to come, and I keep refusing, only because my schedule has not allowed it until now. This has been the busiest year uh, as far as the preaching schedule since I left the pulpit as a pastor. To do this full time, and uh, I think this is my hundredth sermon for the year thus far today. So, and I've got the schedule is full for the rest of the year. So, the Lord's been very kind and gracious, and I see so many new faces here today. I, it would take me a long while to get to meet all of you, but I hope that the days, years will come that I shall be able to know you all by name. I'm trying. I've got several of you down by name, but I still have a whole lot more as you continue to grow, which is such a blessing to see. Amen. Father, we are incredibly blessed and humbled by this truth. That Christ has been supplied to be our righteousness. You know there's no righteousness in me. There's no good thing in my flesh. Thank you that you did not abandon me to me and myself and my pseudo goodness. Thank you Lord that you showed me religion would not prop me up in the day of judgment. Thank you that I have seen by mercy that I have no merit. I have no claim to heaven. All I have is Jesus. And I say, Father, he is enough. He's more than enough. And he's enough to feed us in this hour. He's enough to minister to each and every person here. Lord, you know each person here. You know what's going on in the heart right now. You know, Father, why they're here. I pray for whatever reason, ever motive operative inside them, that you will meet with them. That what they need to see of you and from you, you will reveal. And that you will show us that you are the one thing necessary. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the text we pray the Lord be pleased to speak to us from is the gospel according to Luke chapter 18. Verses 18 through 23. Luke chapter 18. Verses 18 through 23, I want to speak, as you already can see in the order of service, the one thing necessary. The one thing necessary. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18. Now, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have done from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. I want to begin by asking you a very serious question. Why did Jesus answer the young rich ruler the way he did in verse 22? He's a very successful and religious man who appears to be extremely troubled, feeling that he is in jeopardy of eternal life, so much so that he fell at the feet of this young rabbi and said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer sounds, well, should I dare say it, sounds very legalistic, doesn't it? It directs him to the commandments. Tell him, tells him to do this. And then do this. First. Have an estate sale. Sell off everything. Except the clothes on your back. And then donate the proceeds. To the local relief agency. And then finally. Come. Spend the rest of your life. With me. Follow me. Hang out. With me. Now. Why such an apparent, graceless answer? I mean, where's the gospel in what Jesus said? Why is there no explanation of his mission to die in the, in the resurrection from the dead? Now, that's what we've been singing this morning. That's what we heard from the Westminster Confession. The central focus was his death and his resurrection and the atoning merit given to us freely by that death and resurrection why is there a silence on what you and i would consider the essential elements of the gospel nothing mentioned of sin guilt of judgment and righteousness nothing nothing is said as far as the words faith and repentance go is this the way you personally would have answered a very troubled and convicted person if they had come to you Well, just for a few moments, let's put aside the question, because the text will offer an answer, and we'll look at it momentarily. In fact, I am proud and glad to say to you that the text offers a gospel answer. But I want to direct your attention, first of all, to the intensity of the flesh to deliver from sin. You see, the flesh does not always manifest itself in the Most common way we understand the flesh. It's not always the horrible, the vicious, and the vile. It doesn't always appear horrendous and wicked. No, it often appeals and manifests itself as good, upright, honorable, religious, spiritual, The flesh can often masquerade as something that is admirable and something that you would want to achieve. The flesh is often, especially in our circles, manifested in this way, not in the first way of the vile and the corrupt. Oh yes, there is the prodigal, but don't forget there was another wayward son, the elder brother, who was full of the flesh as the younger brother Who spent all of his father's estate on riotous living. But the elder brother was just as vile in his goodness. As we see in Jesus' parable. The intensity of your flesh. I'm speaking both to saint and sinner this morning. The intensity of your flesh will always be wanting to manifest itself in your own performance and moral uprightness. This is just the way it is. Listen to me very carefully. I'm speaking now to the Christian. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you don't have the flesh to wrestle with. You do. And it will most often manifest itself in you. Not in the violation of the commandment, but in the attempt to obey the commandment. You and I have to learn how to discern between a pseudo false spirituality and a true biblical spirituality. This young man, look at him. He's very serious and a very serious student of the law of God. He being a ruler of the local synagogue, he was fluent in the law of Moses. And unlike most of his pharisaical contemporaries, he did not believe being a descendant of Abraham automatically qualified you for eternal life. That was the common theory among the religious teachers of the day. Remember, when they go out to John the Baptist, they present an argument to the Baptist. We don't need to be baptized. We have nothing to repent. We're sons of Abraham, to which John answered, if God wanted to, he can turn rocks into sons of Abraham. That's not much to claim. But this young man didn't didn't rely on his descendancy and his genealogy. And he earnestly attempted to keep the law. Did you see what he says in verse 20? All these things I have kept from my youth. He's much like someone else we know. We heard the text read from Philippians 3. If you would have read just verses before. In verses 4 through 6. He gives his resume before Jesus Christ. And one of the most interesting things he says in that resume. Is in verse 6. Concerning the law. Blameless. Hmm. And he wasn't fibbing. He wasn't exaggerating. This is Paul after conversion. Saying. Yes. Yes. The way we Jews, especially the Pharisees, interpret the law, relegating it only to external behavior and conduct, nobody could point their finger at me and say, Aha, there's sin. I was blameless in my moral dealings and interactions with people. And this is what this young man is saying. And it's interesting... That Jesus gave him five commandments to keep in order to have eternal life. Here again, this is why I say Jesus' answer seems almost legalistic. He doesn't point him to the cross, which is about to happen. He points him back to the law of Moses. Interestingly, the last half, the second part of the Decalogue, the six commandments that deal with our relationship one with another are the last six commands The first four deal with our relationship with God. And Jesus cites five of the last six. Why does he do that? Well, Jesus understands the purpose of the law. And that's why he does it. You see, the purpose of God's commandments, God's rules, (laughs) is so that you can see your sinfulness. That is it. That's the purpose of the law, so that you and I can see that we really don't measure up. And the reason we need the law is because we need something to expose us to us. There's something in me, in, and you, always. No, salvation conversion doesn't change that, that we can always see ourselves in a better light. We can always see ourselves better than we really are. And we need something to help us to get a grip on what's really true about us. And so God gave the law to do that. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense, sin, might abound. Increase. Now that's a remarkable statement. Here's a holy God given a holy commandment so that sin could increase. That doesn't make sense, does it? It does when you understand that there is something innate, native, deeply embedded in us that refuses to see our sin. Even now that I'm a Christian. How many of you like it when a brother comes up to you and says, you know, brother, I really love you. But you know what's coming after the conjunction. But don't you? How many of you enjoy that? None of us do. We don't like it at all. Why? Why? Because none of us like to see our sin. It takes God and He does through through the law. Have you ever owned a white shirt or blouse? You thought it was really white until you went out and bought a brand new one and compared it to the old one. Immediately the old one looks dull and dingy. Maybe even a little yellow. And you're amazed that you ever thought it was white. That's the purpose of the law. It is the reflection the written expression of the righteousness of God himself. And when you see how good God is, your goodness should pale in comparison. That's the purpose. And so Paul says in Romans seven verse 13, "Has then that what has then what is good, that is the law, become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, that is the law, so that the sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Again, Paul does not say the law, makes sin worse. It actually shows you how exceedingly sinful it is. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's the law that bears upon us and says, aha, there's sin right there. And you you know this, don't you? You know this about you. There's just something that ticks against rules. I mean, how many of you honestly have touched the wet paint when it said do not touch wet paint? Come on. Why? 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 Why run the risk of getting paint on your fingers and leaving a mark? Because there's just something innate that doesn't like rules and boundaries and regulations. It feels stifling. We want to express ourselves. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, you cannot be justified. Because the law really can't save you. It just exposes you. You know, a mirror is not that bad. <laughs> I know sometimes we don't like what the mirror suggests. It, it does show the deflex and the dirt. It'll show dirt on your face. But it's not able to clean your face, is it? And that's the law. It exposes, but it cannot cleanse. So, back to my question. Why would have Jesus pointed then this young man wanting eternal life to these five commandments? Why? He believes he's obeyed them. Now, you and I both know what Jesus could have done in a moment. He could have just dismantled that young man by simply referring him back to the Sermon on the Mount. Could he not? You see, these Pharisees believe that they kept the law by their external behavior and conduct. They didn't see the law having any application to the inner man. But when you listen to Jesus, you have heard it written. Thou shall not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you have unjustified by anger towards your brother, you are already guilty. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look upon a woman in lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. He could have gone that route with him. But Jesus doesn't do that. No, he's a master at evangelism. And he knows just how to use the law. To show the utter weakness of the flesh. To keep the law. And so Jesus strategically. Notice. He leaves out one. Of the second half. Of the Decalogue. He leaves out the last. Of the Ten Commandments. And by doing so. He's going to entrap. This young man. Remember if you break. One law, you are guilty of how many? All of the laws. And so Jesus shows him the failure of his flesh. That he in truth has not really kept the law as he thinks he has. By giving him this one command that he knows the young man will struggle over. And he will reveal his heart. Look at verse 22. You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What commandment was Jesus aiming right at the ruler's heart? Thou shalt not covet. That's it. Thou shalt not covet. Materialism had a grip on this man's heart. While in his relationship with others, he had walked blamelessly in his heart. He had committed the worst of all sins through his covetousness, through his materialism. It was the sin of idolatry. You remember what the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 5? Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. To the Ephesians, Paul says, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Think of it. Here this young man thought he had kept these five commandments blamelessly. And yet he was guilty of the greatest of them all. The first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Listen carefully. Your religious performance and knowledge cannot save you. This church cannot save you. The waters of baptism cannot save you. Confessions cannot save you. Preachers cannot save you. The Flesh always will believe That it knows better than God what is best for it. The flesh will always have a system by which it judges itself separate and contrary to God. You know, here, let me give you an illustration that maybe help you right now. How do we judge ourselves? How do we judge one another? We often judge ourselves by a system of right and wrong. Right and wrong determined by, most often, not the Scriptures, but by the flesh. Or a fleshly interpretation of the Scripture, much like the Pharisee. And if a brother wrongs you, what do you demand? Well, you demand restitution. You demand that the imbalance be corrected. You demand satisfaction. And Yet, Jesus says that if you're in the kingdom. Right and wrong is the wrong criteria. The criteria is the cross. Paul writing to the Corinthians. Rebuking brothers taking to brothers to court. Because they had been wronged by someone in the church. said you should be willing to be defrauded by that brother. Rather than take him to a human court. That determines simply on the basis of right and wrong. We're based by the cross. Oh, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His sufferings, being as you read from the ESV, being made like Him in His death. There it is. There it is. Jesus said to you and I, if a man takes your coat, give him your shirt also. If he bids you to walk a mile, walk too. This is the criterion by which God Judges, conformity to Christ and His humility and lowliness. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. There it is. I know those Ten Commandments finds every one of us guilty at some point. But none of us could ever dare in a thousand lifetimes to be as perfect as Christ and as humble and lowly as Him. Yet there it is. There's the Christian manifesto. There's the way we are to live. That's the way we're to judge. That's the way we're to discern the way of life. And the humility of Christ. But no, the flesh wants to vaunt itself, assert itself. And so the Lord Jesus with this young man showed him the covetousness, the secret sin, the respectable sin of his heart. Showing the tight grip he had on his idol. Or his idol had on him. His wealth. Now some think Jesus' command to this man. To give his wealth to the poor. Was merely a test. I say to you it was not a test. It was not some idol threat. It was not an Abraham sacrificing Isaac situation. No not at all. It was real. And it's real because it is the requirement of Repentance. Now, let me ask you, how did Jesus know Zacchaeus had truly repented of his sins? Well, the Bible tells us his repentance was real and observable. Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore fourfold. foe. Well, you take half of his goods and then... You know what tax collectors were famous for. Ripping the people off with their exorbitant taxes. He didn't have much left over of any. And yet our Lord Jesus said today, today salvation has come to this house. His repentance was real, observable, tangible. And so Jesus gives a command here. And though the word repentance is not in the text. My dear friend. It's there. It's there in a real way. In a way that a man like this young rich ruler could see and feel. But then comes the one thing necessary. And I want to spend the rest of my time on this. It's also in verse 22. You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have distribute to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Follow me. It's here I come back to the initial question that I began with. Why the absence of the essential elements of the gospel in Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler? And I'm hoping that by now you're beginning to see that my original question was faulty. Because it assumes that because certain words are missing, sin and judgment and repentance and faith, Christ's death and resurrection, because they're not specifically mentioned. My question is assuming that they are not there. But as we just saw, repentance was clearly there. You've got a God that you worship and it isn't Jehovah. It isn't the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. It's your wealth. It's your possessions. Repent. Turn from your idol. Turn away. And here we see faith. 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 But not in, listen carefully, not in our Lord's penal substitutionary sacrifice. And so I ask this question. Why is there no explanation of the great doctrine of justification by faith alone? We heard our pastor say just a few moments ago, just the songs and reading the confession, hearing the text, had warmed his heart. And of course, it ought to have had. Shame on you. If your heart didn't get warm, you weren't really paying attention, were you? Because if you're saved, your heart should have been moved by these things. Oh, how dull we can get. This is the grand hope of all of us. That we are not going to face God by our own goodness or lack thereof. We will not be judged, heaven and hell, by what we did or did not do. But upon what He has done, upon Him alone, is my hope. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. But there's nothing of this In his answer. Or is there? Why no exposition on the nature. Of saving grace. Here's a man convicted of his sins. He's a young rich ruler. He knows the Bible. And yet he knows. That even in his performance. Something's still lacking. He's got him where. We would like to have him today. Oh. What what would I give. Right now. To have one of you. Say to me, at the conclusion of this message, but you don't have to wait. I've had people interrupt my preaching, stand up and say, I'm lost. Please tell me, what do I do now? I wish someone would say to me, "What a, I, I've tried to obey God. I've been a good person, but I know I'm not fit for heaven. What's wrong? Tell me. That's what happens here. And all Jesus says is, come, follow me. I submit to you that our Lord could not have said anything that would get to the heart of the gospel better than what he said. In fact, this is the very same thing he called the apostles with. Now, we don't have all of the accounts of each individual call of each apostle. But we do have Peter, Andrew, James, John and Matthew's call. Very specifically detailed. And in all five instances. Jesus said to those five men. The same thing he said to the young rich ruler. Follow me. Because at the heart of this command. To follow him. Is the heart of what faith in Christ really means. Jesus is demanding. Not just from this young rich ruler. He's demanding from every person in this room. He's demanding faith in Himself. So that you would trust Him enough to commit everything to Him. That is the Gospel call. The Gospel call is not a faith that Jesus can take care of your sins. Period. End of story. No, no. Not at all. It is a faith in Christ Himself. And all that there is about you Past, present, and future. Not just your sins, but your current life and the direction the life, your life is going. And in your eternity with Him, do you trust Him like this? Are you willing to leave all behind and follow Him, committing everything to Him? This, my friend, is the heartbeat of faith, saving faith. And if we're not careful, here's my warning. You knew it was going to happen sooner or later, didn't you? Here's my warning. If we're not careful, we will strip faith of its meaning and make it something very abstract, conceptual, and merely academic. Here's what happens tragically in good, sound doctrinal churches. Many of the saints, or at least... We will be generous and liberal and say that they are saints, but I fear so many of them aren't because their faith is not in a person, but in their knowledge of the doctrine about that person. And you say, what is the difference? And there, my, pro- my friend, is your problem. There's a huge difference. Jesus demands faith in Him, a living person with whom you are to have intimate knowledge. I so fear that what we have is not Christianity, but churchianity. We've learned the system. A system. A reductionist system of Christianity. Where you believe the doctrine, you accept the truths, you learn the songs, You learn the prayers. You read your Bible. You serve in the church. You give your money. You do all the things that we all know. Upstanding Christians do. And our faith is not in a person. We're not following a person. We're following a dogma. And no more can the dogma save than the law. It is Christ that saves. The doctrine points me to Him and His saving work. The doctrine, the teaching, the words of Scripture point me to a person who's living, who is viable, and has powerful to the saving of the soul, to Christ Himself. The Gospel says we're to have faith in a person, not just what a person has done. In fact, it is because who Christ is Makes what Christ has done. Effectual and powerful. My friends you can believe. That Jesus is the incarnate son of God. And that he died on a cross. Rose three days later. And still not really embrace. And believe the gospel. And die and go to hell. Very possible. And millions are doing it today. In churches throughout. This, not just this country. But in many other places in the world. Now. Please, it would be so easy for someone to misunderstand. So let me clarify for biblical balance sake. I'm not minimizing my precious Lord's substitutionary and penal sacrifice on Calvary. Oh no. I assent and I proclaim that His blood is redemptive, cleansing, and essential to the sinner's salvation. Hear me well. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope of eternal life. None. But please listen again. But faith is not limited to these things. The word of faith embraces those things. Because it believes in the person who did those things. Faith is not just in His redemptive work. It's in Jesus Himself. Do you know Him? Are you trusting in Him? Therefore the Bible says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Did you know that the Bible rarely talks about faith in the death or resurrection of Christ as a criteria? This past week I went through the entire New Testament looking at every verse with the words trust, believe, believes faith. And I only found that doesn't mean there wasn't another, I found only two verses in the entire New Testament that says faith in the death or resurrection or both is a necessity. The first first Thessalonians four fourteen. For if we believe but Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And of course, the most famous one of all, Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those were the only two verses. Now, there might be some that I just didn't see or I overlooked. But I found a whole lot of verses. The majority by far. That said things like this for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. But has everlasting life. I don't know why it is, Pastor, but every time I quote that verse among my reformed brethren, I always get the feeling everybody's thinking and looking at me like I'm an Armenian. John 3.16 is part of our Bible. Or about this one, when asked by the multitude, "What is the work of God that we are to do?" What does Jesus say? This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. Acts ten: To all the prophets, all the prophets witness that through His name, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. And of course, Hebrews eleven sixteen. But without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is. Faith in a person. In His existence. And that is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. Faith in His character. In His heart. And what is that heart? What is that character? Goodness. Goodness. Praise be to God. Goodness to sinners. He never made his passion and resurrection the centerpiece of any evangelistic conversation he had with anyone. Not with the Samaritan woman. No, not with his young rich ruler. Only one you can find it. And it's with Nicodemus. And it was so veiled that Nicodemus didn't get it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He didn't even get it. And when Peter made his wonderful confession in Matthew 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter had no faith in the cross and resurrection of our blessed Lord. In fact, afterwards, Jesus begins to tell them these things, and Peter takes Christ aside and says, Now, 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 this shall never happen to you. He has no faith in the cross, no faith in the resurrection. And yet, He's regenerate. Yet, He's saved. Yet, He's one of the sheep. Now, please again, let me one more time say, I am not in the least minimizing the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. Paul makes it the essential core of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It was the heart of his preaching. And so it should be out. But many of us do believe that He died, was buried, and rose again. And we have no faith in Him. Many of us have believed upon Him for the forgiveness of sin. But that's about the length and duration of our faith. And yet the Bible says the just shall live by faith. I often ask crowds, what are you trusting God for today? But unless God comes through for you today... You fail. And everybody looks at me with a blank look. Except for a a rare few. We're to live by faith. That means I must be trusting Him for something. Not just that He's going to get me home safely one day. But what about my life today? What about my issues? What about my needed sanctification? Because I need a lot of sanctifying to tell you the truth. And so do you. What are we trusting Him for? So how would I define faith in Jesus And so I've tried to reduce it so some of these young people can understand it. Which helps me also. Devoted trust. Faith in Christ is devoted trust. It is a trust born from love that causes you to want, joyfully want, to be devoted to Him. To follow Him wherever He is. Because where He is, is your aspiration. To be with Him is your goal. To fellowship with Him is life's great achievement. Christ and Christ alone has your heart and therefore your devotion. Do you hear me? Am I making sense this morning? This Saint Jesus who died on the cross and was buried and rose again, says to you and me today, follow me. Follow me. Be devoted because you'll trust in me. Trust in me. And so Christ becomes the most cherished and precious thing about the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is not a Just about Him. It is Him. Are you following Him? Are you devoted to Him? Does your heart yearn like the Apostle? In that 10th verse of the 3rd chapter of Philippians. Oh, that I may know Him. He's near the end of His life. Almost 30 years of ministry. And still the one. The one. Gold that propels them out of bed in the morning and he lays his head on his pillow still with beating in his heart. I want to know him better. I want to know him better. I want to be more devoted to him. Oh, dear friend. Yes. Yes. You must see him as your Savior, but you must also see him as your Shepherd. Yes, you must know him as your Redeemer, but also as your Sanctifier. Yes, you must know Him as your priest, but also your prophet and your king. You must not only bow the knee to this bleeding Savior, but you must also enter through Him, for He's the door. We must believe all there is about Him and appropriate it. This is devoted trust because, because He was devoted to you. Why do you think he set himself apart? For as he did in the incarnation, became a man. Why? For you. All that he did, he did for you. All was weighed by its benefit to you. He was always mindful of his responsibility as your redeemer. Therefore, he says to the Baptist, having no sins to repent, no sins to wash away in the muddy waters of Jordan, We must fulfill all righteousness, John. Why? He repented for you so that your repentance is even righteous. Oh, praise be to God. He's devoted to you. He willingly left his father. Are you so devoted to him that you'll leave father, mother, wife and children, houses and land? He left heavenly enjoyments for earthly agonies. Oh, have you turned your back on this world like old pilgrim fleeing from the city of destruction? Have you found yourself increasingly vexed in soul because of the wickedness and the darkness that's encroaching on our society? He traded heaven's diadem for a crown of thorns. He laid aside his holy vestments to be robed in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? So that he could be cursed in your place. He, He cursed on Calvary's hill is the same God who gave those curses and blessings on Sinai. And yet now here He is dying for you. Oh, my dear sinner, friend, I want you to hear me. Hear me good. Where you will spend forever depends upon what you do with what I say now. He would in much compassion deal with you and offer you His help this morning. He'd gladly take you to the Father and introduce you today. He longs to take you and show you the Father and bring you two together in loving fellowship. He would say to you this morning if you could hear Him Let me bear your load. That awful load you carry. Perhaps you would resist and argue. Oh no Lord. That weight is all my sin. All my shame. And the reproach that my sin has earned. You're much too good. You're much too holy. To be spoiled by it. To which if you listen carefully. Perhaps you will hear. The Lord's reply. As he throws, as he desires to throw his arms around you and lift you up. You're weak, but I am strong. No amount of sin is too much for me. This is the measure of my devotion to you, your sin. Oh, will you believe that he is able this morning? Not all your goodness, not all your praying. Sighs and tears can bear this awful load. But Christ can. And He's just that good. Oh, please, may I take just a few more moments and present Him and before your eyes and your soul that you could look upon Him and be devoted this morning. Who is this God? We call the Christ, the Jesus, the Messiah. God in flesh. The eternal God, the Creator. Robed now. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin condemn sin in the flesh. Here He is nailed on Calvary's cross. You see, I believe in the cross too. Here is our hope that He was nailed in your place. He's the same loving God who would save you today. If you would just in simple faith devote yourself to His care. He will care for you better than your flesh. And judgment will ever do. Oh, this is the same one. The same one who was willing to touch the leper in his leprosy. Knowing that the very laws he had given Moses would now condemn him as being unclean for touching the leper. Yet he did it. Yet he touched the unclean. He'll touch you this morning, my friend. And dear Christian, if you've turned your back on the Lord for a season... He'll receive you. There's nothing for you to do but to believe, to be devotedly trusting in this person and his great heart. Oh, this is the same one who's so weak, not, excuse me, not weak, but lowly and meek that a woman of ill repute, a prostitute, he would allow her to take The produce of her wares. Of expensive bottle of perfume. And poured on his feet. And then with lips. That she had kissed scores of men. Not her husband. Take those same lips and kiss his sacred holy feet. And turned to her and said. Thy sins are forgiven thee. This is who we're talking about. Why would He turn you away? He won't. He'll receive you. And Dear child of God this morning, would you hear me? Faith is nothing more than being devoted to the One that's devoted to you and to trust Him explicitly. Not perfectly. No, none of us do that. But explicitly with everything. Oh, He is trustworthy. This is the Gospel. Jesus Christ. Yes, Him crucified, buried, and resurrected. But again, those events in His life have the power to save us today and to sanctify us until we stand glorified in His presence because of Him who He is. He is the spotless Lamb of God who has taken our sins upon Himself. Oh, would you trust Him today? Would you trust Him today? How many of you would say, I've lost Christ in the midst of even the doctrine of Him. He's been clouded. He's been shielded. He's been veiled from my eyes. In my attempt to learn more Scripture, I seemingly have lost faith. And my faith has been weakened, not grown. Here's the answer. You've separated the truth of Christ from Christ. Cease. Stop that. Let the truth of Christ point you to an intimate experience with Him. Oh, yes. But God, revive our hearts today that we can cry, Oh, here's my chief desire and delight that I may know Him. And be devotedly trusting in Him. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I just want you before we pray. To apply what you've heard to you. Not your neighbor. Not someone else in this building you've been thinking. Boy I hope they're listening. I want you to apply it to you. What's God said to you? And right where you are you can do business with God. You don't need to have an altar call or come forward. If you I'm sure that would be all right with the leadership here, but that's not what we're after. We're after you to take this word and apply it to your heart. How how is your trust? Is it devoted a devoted trust? Or is it trust just in What you've learned, your knowledge. Oh, my friend, don't trust in just what you know. Trust in what your knowledge leads you to. And it should lead you to Jesus. Come, follow me. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. As you're dealing with us right now. We want to yield. There's something in all of us. Even sinners that want to yield. It's your Holy Spirit. Tugging at our hearts. Even as the young rich ruler. But he went away sorrowful. Because he trusted in his wealth. More than he could trust in you. Lord help. Help these who are not yet Christians. To see that they could never be as good as you. And that's your standard by which eternal life is merited. Having to be as good as you. To live by a different ethic than just right and wrong. But the ethic of the cross. Being reviled, he reviled not. But entrusted himself to him who was righteous. Lord bring it home to them. And save. And for my dear brothers and sisters. Father we confess to you that our faith is often just like Peter, James and John before Pentecost. Weak and little. We can devote ourselves to religion so much easier than we can to you a person. Forgive us and show us the way. Bless this church as you have evidently done. Continue with them. Help them to sound the gospel that we have a Savior, a Redeemer, a Lord, a Shepherd, a good God who is trustworthy. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.